Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Charlotte Bond. Previously on Breaking the Glass Slipper, we have covered Disney princesses, but this time we thought we would turn our attention to the men. But we're a podcast about women, so why spend an entire episode focusing on princes and other male protagonists in Disney films? Well, the dominant narratives surrounding men, and in this instance boys, can be as harmful as the lack of representation or opportunity for their female counterparts. In this episode, we are going to look at what characteristics princes in the Disney oeuvre are allowed to have, how their roles compare to the starring princesses, and what it teaches us about the views of masculinity. Princes aren't often given much to do in Disney films, let's be honest. So they're often relegated to saving the princess at the end rather than actually driving the narrative. Or, you know, the earliest princes from Snorri and the Seven Dwarfs and Cinderella, they don't even get names. The relegation of princes in these stories, is this something that was in the original fairy tales or was it a trope that Disney created? And I feel like Charlotte probably has some insight onto this one. I do, but can I start with a, a little pop fact that I know? The first prince to be named was um, the prince in Sleeping Beauty and he was named Prince Philip after our very own, well, mine are Lucy's, very own Prince Philip of England. So I just thought that was kind of cool. But um, I don't know. I think looking at the original fairy tales, not only the ones that the Grimm's put down and also Perrault and, and all the others. If you look back to the folk tales where they came from, I think the clue is in the name. It's folk. It is your local hero. It is whoever happens to be, you know, around at the time. They were the heroes or the heroines. These folk tales are told by people sitting in front of fires. They were just given random names and random attributes based on what those people in the village really enjoyed and really valued. So I think when the Grimm set them down and Perot and all the others, they didn't have anything to work from. They could pick and choose. And certainly looking at them, it doesn't seem that a lot of them get names. And having read the complete works of um, the Grimm's brothers by the excellent Jack Zipes, it was an awful lot of the fairy tales didn't have names for any of the characters. It was just a boy or a girl or Hans or something like that. It was, there were a lot of names that recurred. Um, so the fact that they don't have names, I think, does obviously reflect from the previous fairy tales where they came from. And they didn't really have much to do in the fairy tales. If you had a fairy tale, it tended to focus on one person who was the hero or heroine, and everyone else did fall by the wayside. And it just seems to be that when Disney started up, he decided he would pick things like Snow White and Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty as the ones that he wanted to do for whatever reason. I mean, there are some brilliant stories in the original fairy tales, Three Brothers is a really fantastic one that you never see anywhere. And I mean, that you know, you've got some really good stories there. Perhaps I suppose all the brothers seem to die off or have something nasty happen to them. So maybe that was it. But then you could argue that Cinderella and you know the others all had rather nice things happening to them as well because Disney would pick and choose his bits. So I don't know why he focused on the women, but certainly within the stories of Cinderella and Snow White and whatever, the princes weren't named, but there were princes with better roles but they had their own stories, at which point the women were marginalised. So you never kind of had a good, solid story in the original fairy tales that balanced both proactive and interesting protagonists. Uh, speaking of 
the names of or lack of names of princes. I was another interesting fact. I was uh, only really just found out when I was doing some reading for this episode is that the term Prince Charming actually originates from an 1889 translation of. I'm never going to pronounce this in a proper French accent, but Le Roy Charmant, the Charming King. And then a year later, the phrase Prince Charming was used in the picture of Dorian Gray, which I have read, but I didn't pick up on that. And apparently that was the first usage of the phrase. And after that, it stuck somehow. So obviously, Prince Charming has become a trope. But it's interesting that almost from the very beginning, the prince didn't have a name, that he was relegated to the role of saviour and the term charming is simply a, a name for that or a lack of a name. It's just he is charming. That's his attribute. It's really interesting to think about the fact that it was the word charming. And maybe, you know, I don't know, you could tell me that I'm reading too much into it, but it's a very, it's almost a passive kind of term that you're applying to this character. They're not you know, adventurous or talented or skilled, they're just charming. And is charming really a, potentially, I mean, it, it could be something that, you know, we look differently on the word charming now, but to me, charming is often associated with a sort of sliminess and, and a, a falseness that, say, just being kind or generous or anything like that might um, convey with that kind of term. Yeah, it's interesting that it appeared in Dorian Gray, you know, because on the outside, that's what I suppose Dorian was. He's a charming young man. But obviously, we know that the portrait shows a di completely different story. So perhaps charming simply meant one who moves well in genteel society and knows the right word to say at the right moment in time. And do we think that there are, when we look at Disney films in particular, do we think there are certain personalities or activities that the princes are allowed or at least were allowed in the early films? Well, when I was preparing for this episode, I started writing a load of answers to it and I realised that actually they only really apply to the early films. Later on, they get much, much better. And I mean, I think the ultimate one is Flynn from Tangled. Uh, and a fact that I've repeated before is that Tangled is named Tangled rather than Rapunzel because by the time they finished it, they realised that Flynn had a, an equal role in it almost, an equal character development to Rapunzel herself. So it wasn't fair to name it Rapunzel in the same way that they'd named Snow White and Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty and so on. But, I mean, he's miles down the line. I think right at the very beginning, in a weird way, the personalities and their activities they are allowed or they are given is they are the reward that the princess gets. So, sorry, the Snow White or, or Cinderella or whatever, they are the ultimate end game for the main female character. So it's whatever that character would like in a man. Um, and obviously Cinderella has been really brutally abused by her stepmother and nobody is charming to her. And to have someone who is so charming that he's actually called charming is just fantastic and exactly the right sort of person. Um, Snow White has obviously various different dwarves to deal with. Um, but again, he's not named, he doesn't necessarily have any attributes. He's just the end game. He is the thing that she gets when she's reached the end of her story and she gets happiness. Um, and then obviously Prince Philip and Aurora are a little bit different because Philip starts to have a bit more of a, a character um, to him and he's a little bit rebellious. 
So, but he again, he balances out Aurora because she's very, very uh, obedient and she sticks around and does what she's told and she just pretends to go off and do stuff. Whereas actually, he goes charging through the forest and goes, "Oh no, I'll be back later, father." And then he tries to win her and he sneaks in and you know dances with her in place of the owls and the cloak which is a sentence I never thought I'd say. Um, but he's he compliments her beautifully. But again, Aurora is still kind of the main one and he his attributes and everything are designed to be what she would look for in a person, not necessarily what would make a good prince. Ah, so that's interesting. So do you feel that uh, the princes are being disenfranchised by the very women they hope to win? I would say so. And whether that is something to do with Disney, who there are so many essays on him and his approach to women and people in general, um, whether that was something that he imposed, or like I said, whether it maybe just goes back to the original fairy tales where you always had a main character and then everyone else was secondary to help that character on their quest. So there would be lots of different characters, but they would appear maybe once and or twice and they were plot devices and that was it. And I think what that's what the early princes are. They are plot devices and they are rewards. And nobody really thought much about that at the time because it's not about the story. It's about the animation and it's about the the songs and the beauty of it. And Walt Disney wanted to do something so massively different. I think it's only when you get a bit later that you suddenly start to get a little bit more, like obviously Sleeping Beauty um, with Prince Philip just having that little bit more character and kind of going, okay, well, lots of people are going to see this and lots of people are wanting to see it as something fun they've got over the novelty of it being a full-length cartoon we've actually got to give them a story at which point you then start getting the story dynamics going well actually you've got to have a little bit of this that and a bit of balancing a bit of conflict a bit of romance and they can't just be two people who never meet there's got to be something there i want to pick up on something that you said earlier about the princes being a prize to be won if you remember in aladdin that line is actually like verbatim what Jasmine says to him, you know, I am not a prize to be won. And it's interesting there where you have a film where it's, you know, named after and it is about the prince in that situation. I mean, prince in inverted commas, um, Aladdin. So it's interesting that they're kind of almost lampshading the fact that Jasmine is taking over that role where she is little more than the the prize. Well, exactly. And that was one of the things that I thought about when I was preparing for this episode is that Aladdin is pretty much a gender swap Cinderella, certainly in the way that Disney presents it. You've got the rags to riches story. And I suppose there's no deception in Cinderella. And you've got, you know, the deception side in in Aladdin. And there's obviously different morals because there's a long, long gap between them. But you're quite right. She is taking over the role of the the end game prince only because the gender roles reversed. She's now the end game princess. And I always thought it was really interesting with Disney that they made this effort to make the women, the female princesses over the years, more and more interesting and proactive and more full of personality. But they just seem to forget about the princes. And Jasmine was one of my least favorite princesses when I was a kid because she is so so passive and just doesn't really do much and has that terrible duet that I really can't stand. And anybody who's been to see the more recent Aladdin, the live action version, there's a whole bit in it where Jasmine sings about, well, I'm not going to be controlled by you guys. You can basically F off. Well, obviously not F off because it's a kid's film. But she's has this whole song going, I am not going to be ignored. I'm not going to be overruled. I have as much right to be here. And in fact, I have as much right to be the sultan as anybody else here. And it really, in a weird way, it really is taking that prince's role and expanding it because you don't get that with any of the other 
the other stories that we've had. We're now getting on to the next question, which was that there are a few princes in the Disney canon that are given a bit more scope in the narrative, like Ladin and Arthur in the Sword of Stone, who is not necessarily born royal, and in much the same way that the princesses, uh, like Cinderella, are sort of five their rags to riches story. They these characters also have the same sort of um, narrative arc. But why do we think this is? Do we think Disney is making a comment on working for your success, a sort of not so veiled criticism of the monarchy? I'm not sure about whether it's a veiled criticism of the monarchy, but I do think that working for your success has some traction because I feel like, well, I certainly feel like the most successful Disney films, in my opinion, are the ones that they are similar kind of rags to riches stories and and not the, the type that the riches just kind of fall into your lap. So, you know, Aladdin was always one of my and my sister's favorite films possibly because when you have nothing and you really only have your wits and and your experience it just makes a much more interesting character and also provides somewhere for the character to go i'm not saying that ending up a millionaire is is everyone's goal in life but certainly in a rags to riches story like aladdin it certainly kind of gives um I, I really don't want to use the word meaty. I use this word far too much. I don't like it. So it's a really um, compelling plot line. There are a lot more people who could identify with somebody who has very little or nothing than identify with a Prince Charming who is born into a royal family and eats off a silver plate and basically has everything he could want. Except a princess. I think that's a really interesting point, actually. I think you're right. Certainly in previous times, the aim of everybody's life was to improve your status and to try and climb up the social hierarchy. And I think that's still something that's very relevant for a lot of people. But we have other things that we're doing now. Lots of people are environmentalists or fighting for equal rights or something like that. So they have other elements where they're trying to gain traction, whereas previously it was just trying to make your life better, trying to get more money to feed your family, to be seen in a better social circle. And I think obviously Disney and certainly the early Disneys reflect that quite a bit. Where does Little Mermaid fit in with this then? Because you have the princess of an undersea kingdom who then falls in love with the prince and the land, the kingdom of land. Uh, I mean, I feel like Ariel's story wouldn't have happened if she'd fallen in love with a commoner, for one. But are we saying that it's just that being on land is better than being under the sea? Or is that one that is just a complete outlier and doesn't fit into this category? Well, I suppose from Ariel's point of view, it is kind of improving your status because at the beginning she has that whole song and irrelevant of whether we think it's cooler to be a mermaid or a princess, she clearly thinks it's much cooler to go up there and to be a human and to walk around on those little things, what do you call them, feet. She has a whole song about it. So for her, it really is an improvement of status. And achieving that status, again, is tied up with Prince Eric being the end game um, and being the one that she has to play for very definitely with the whole bargain with Ursula where she has to get him or she ends up back where she was or worse. Um, so, But I think it's the same general layout. I think what then starts to change is we must be, what, the 1980s by now, or maybe even the early 90s. And it's 
more of a balanced role. Eric has his own ideas. He, it's not just there's true love there automatically. She kind of has to to win his true love. And I must admit, I have never read the original Little Mermaid, so I'm not quite sure how that balances out. But certainly Disney makes a very good idea of um, dealing with the issues of consent and first kisses and trying to show the person that you are. And it's all about bettering yourself and getting what you want. And Eric, I suppose, also wants this magical woman that he's never really seen. And he has his own personal things to overcome and Ariel has as well. But certainly for Ariel, being a princess on land from her limited point of view is definitely an increase in status. So, I mean, round about the time of The the Little Mermaid, I think you do see a very interesting change, which I wanted to get your guys' opinions on. Um, I think in the previous ones, it is all about improving your status. And it continues to be a little bit about that when it comes to women for a bit longer in Disney. But one of the things I tend to notice about the guys, and I'm thinking maybe sort of Hercules, um, Toy Story, things like that, even maybe Pinocchio, although Pinocchio still goes with the, the bit about improving your status. But it becomes a bit more complex. It's more about overcoming personal issues rather than society issues. So in all the previous ones, the princesses are all trying to overcome the limits put on them society and raise themselves up. And the only way they can really do that is by marriage and princes. Whereas when you get to look at the the boys' stuff, maybe the fox and hound as well, it's about how you overcome society's pressures, but also how you fit into society. There seems to be more about that, I felt, than trying to improve your status when it's a sort of a more male protagonist-led story. Um, so do you think we do see a very different representation of men when they are the lead protagonists in other sort of films like Hercules, The Black Cauldron, Peter Pan, The Rescuers, Toy Story, that kind of thing? When it comes to the male protagonist-led films, I do really like something like Fox and the Hound. And even I would say things like The Jungle Book and Robin Hood as well, because they they actually show male friendships, which in sort of the, the earlier princess films where you have those men who are relegated to really sideline roles who don't have a lot to do, there's, you know, there's very little characterization of just them at all, let alone giving them a friendship that means anything. And so that to me is a really nice shift that you start to see. And, you know, you have the friendships between Mowgli and um, Blue. Yes, the friendship between Mowgli and Baloo, you know, is lovely. And then with Bagheera as well, who I absolutely loved and had a total crush on, but that's by the by. Um, <laughs> and you have, I mean, The Fox and the Hound is wonderful. It's, it makes me cry anytime I've seen it. And to this day, I can't, it, it's really quite harrowing. But at the same time, it's, it's really lovely. You have a kind of uh, Shakespearean Romeo and Juliet type thing, but with friends and you know that it overcomes kind of their situations in life which is a really nice message i think which is it's interesting but i i do definitely think that you start to see a side of men that shows them as more than just there to be that prize or be that knight in shining armor what about uh, timon and pumba they'd be a great pairing to add to your yeah <laughs> yep. and uh well also um gay subtext which i didn't again didn't really pick up on until i was quite a lot older they might have a relationship but i also love the fact that they open up their relationship to include simba and they take him kind of under their wing as as their two male parents that's a great yes representation that's very true um actually very modern 
So a bit ahead of its time for Disney, really. Well, it's interesting because obviously that one is supposed to be Hamlet, but with lions. So it makes you wonder if because they tackled something that was more in-depth and had as their basis some Shakespearean text, if that then either gave them the inspiration to be a bit more you know, out there with their ideas, or they kind of went, well, we've already got a really decent story here. What else can we throw in to make it really cool? One of the Disney films that I, I never got around to watching was The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Um, and Quasimodo is obviously a male protagonist. So I just wondered, um, you know, I've read a bit about the film and I've seen a kind of couple of, of tropes float to the surface. But I wondered if either of you had watched it and whether what your thoughts were on Quasimodo as a male protagonist and whether you feel that he had a valid storyline uh, was in some way disenfranchised by surrounding tropes. That was never one of my favourites and probably, well, quite definitely about the fact that he doesn't really get his own story at all because everything he does is basically to impress or or to be for Esmeralda. And while I suppose you could say she is nice to him, it's clearly he thinks she's beautiful. He wants to be with her and she just kind of thinks of him as this funny little guy who's just on the sidelines and then, you know, helps her hook up with the love of her life and so on. And he is just mistreated from absolutely everyone. And it's, uh, I don't know, I really didn't like it as as a film. I've seen it a couple of times since I was a kid and each time I really struggle with it. But I've not read the book um, that it's based on, but I understand that from a Disney perspective, it's relatively faithful in in the terms of how Quasimodo is treated uh, but I yeah I didn't like it particularly in how he is treated throughout the film. I remember watching it once when I was a kid and not liking it and my takeaway from that film was kind of twofold. One that Quasimodo didn't get the girl And he clearly should have done because he was infinitely nicer and he was super cool. He had a great singing voice. He had three gargoyles. What's not to like? Then at the same time, I also felt conflicted because I recognized that Esmeralda didn't love him. And I knew at that age that you shouldn't be with someone that you don't love just because you feel sorry for them. So it was like a really horrible no-win situation for me. And I would personally, as a kid, much rather have watched the ones where it was very clear who was going to get married and it was just a case of watching it to the end. Or even if it was sad that you felt that there was some balance to it. I just felt this was massively unfair and that it was just a horrible take on how awful humans were. And it was nothing bigger. It was just humans being horrible to each other. And I just I just couldn't be doing with that. Yeah, I think also where you have... With other stories, especially things like Cinderella, say, for example, where you have that main character who is being treated really poorly by the people around her and, you know, she really dreams of this better life, which Quasimodo very much fits into that narrative. But at the end, he doesn't get the reward like we've seen in the other films. And I think particularly as a child, I felt like that was wrong. Because I had been watching these films and, you know, when someone has the terrible childhood or the, you know, people are horrible to them, if they're good people and they do good things, then they're going to be rewarded by the end. And I felt kind of ripped off. So is that an indictment of how we see male characters or how we see differently abled characters? Well, it's difficult because it's based on 
a story that was written a long time ago when differently able characters were not seen as something that should be the hero of a story. And like I said, even when I was growing up, it was still kind of like, oh, it's a bit weird and whatever. Nowadays, I think they are more proactive about it and more equal about it and kind of go, well, yeah, everybody looks different. It's it's not a problem. It's what's inside that counts. And I, I really did come away from The Hunchback of Notre Dame thinking, it's what's inside that counts. Why hasn't he got the girl? But then also feeling bad because she shouldn't be the reward. It's just It's just a horrible mess of a film. And because it is because it reflects the societal views of the time when it was written, not when Disney made it, but when it was written, I think that is another problem because they're trying to promote something that is not good, was not good then and is definitely not good now. Whereas at least with Cinderella, everybody hopes that they'll win the lottery or that they might marry someone for true love. And I just don't think any of the decent morals are in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Jumping on to another terrible trope, which I had not before considered to be used on male characters is um, the idea of the dudesel, like the dudesel in distress rather than the damsel in distress. Um, and there's a really, really interesting article on Bitchflix that talks about um, male protagonists who have kind of succumbed to these tropes. The one that that was really interesting, uh, there was a couple of ones that were really interesting, but the first example was about Maurice, uh, as in Belle's father, um, the, the inventor. And it's really interesting because this article talks about um, the fact that Maurice is constantly punished for his attempts, any attempt that he makes to assert agency or independence, rather like we level at, you know, badly drawn female characters um, or disenfranchised female characters. And they're also used as, as in these male characters are used to force the female protagonist into kind of rescuing them. So like, this is like the, the dad doodzel in distress. And obviously this happens to Belle, like Maurice makes some terrible attempts to rescue her and it just basically makes her situation worse. And then of course, uh, this happens with Ariel as well, when her father gets turned into a worm. And also Mulan, where her father is injured and is threatened with a war that's going to end in his almost certain death. And she moves, she feels like she must move to protect him. So I hadn't really thought about male characters in that role of that kind of sacrificial role of, you know, they have to be sacrificed in order for the female protagonist to move forward. Is it such a problem? You know, apologies if I'm, I'm, you know, stirring the pot here, but is it as big a problem for this kind of thing to happen when you're saying, oh, a couple of times this happens um, to male characters as opposed to a long, long history of it happening to women over and over and over again? I think it is worth pointing out when it comes to Disney. I think Disney has been very weird. I say that as the company rather than the man, although initially it was the man, has been very weird in trying to promote the women and letting the men slide. And I think it comes back to the whole point of this particular episode, which is, yes, we want strong female characters, but we don't want the men to be disenfranchised as part of that. Um, and I mean, my favourite ever movie is Tangled because it's such a wonderful balance of male and female characters. And I don't see why every Disney movie ever can't be like that. And they do seem to be doing 
a lot more. I mean, the most recent one, Aladdin, that I saw, the live action one, was great balance of characters. They even got a love interest for the genie who is, you know, quite spunky. And it, it interests, it makes him more interesting. And the dynamic between Aladdin and Jasmine is, is very different. And I think that a lot of people have focused on the Disney princesses and thrown ire at them because they are the thing that really captivates small little girls, small children, and they really want to be like. But I then look at it and think, well, the Disney princes haven't really got much. And like Lucy says, there are these terrible tropes about guys in the background as well. And I don't necessarily think it would be a problem if it wasn't for the main problem of the princes and the men within Disney who are just so appalling. And then look, all these guys in the background are also appalling. And I think it is something that does need to be addressed. And I mean, I was thinking about Aladdin and the Sultan was another one that would fit Lucy's list, um, where the Sultan is basically just running around being a complete idiot, um, is controlled by Jafar, and then ends up, like you say, being one of the ones that both Aladdin and Jasmine try to save. Yeah, and actually, um, it's not just uh, the dudes we have to feel sorry for, because the love, this is another thing that I uh, was reading part of the Bitchflix article, is that the love interest as a doodle in distress is very troubling because girls, and I'm quoting here, girls are taught through this trope that love is the inevitable result of gratitude rather than the doodle's own choice, which picks up quite neatly on what Charlotte was saying about Hunchback of Notre Dame, that gratitude becomes part of the very nature of falling in love and the thing that upset you so much is Cosimodo didn't get the girl, but actually the other thing is that it's not fair that Esmeralda had to basically enter into a relationship because of gratitude. So that's another, it was an interesting kind of flip side as well, that actually having a doodle in distress is not good for the dude, but it's also not good for his potential love interest or female opposite character. So this is where Hercules absolutely <laughs> wins all the awards, and I love it. And Hercules was always my favourite, uh, and not just because the the main female is called Meg, uh, but that I mean, of course, it had something to do with it. <laughs> and she does have a great song. Come on, but there's that moment where Hercules goes to save Meg, and she's like, "Don't worry about it. I'm not one of your damsel in distress. You know, I I can sort myself out. I I don't need you to rescue me, kind of thing." But he goes along with it and tries to rescue her, and of course, makes it worse. And then she just sorts it out for herself. And I always really liked that because it kind of it it shows that she has power, but it also teaches him a lesson that if if a woman says she doesn't need your help, maybe she doesn't. I I have to say that I bought Hercules most recently for my daughter, and we sat and watched it, and it is. It is still one of her favourites. I mean, she loves Frozen. She loves getting dressed up. But quite often she'll say, can we watch Hercules? Because it is a really nice, refreshing take on pretty much everything. And you've got Hercules, who is a proactive, slightly dim, but genuinely good-hearted guy. And Megara, who is slightly more shady and complex and really gives the girls something to think about because she is kind of good and acting from good intentions, but... She's also been hurt by love. I mean, there's just so much in there that you don't get in the early ones where it's just straightforward. You know, I've got to marry the prince and that's it. And even The Little Mermaid, which is great fun and has a lot to recommend it, is basically just trying to get someone to marry you. Whereas I think with Hercules, there's a lot more explored and a lot more in-depth sort of ideas in it that, okay, you might get into something like The Lion King and Notre Dame, but isn't necessarily about the relationship between men and women. Do you think this comes about because you have you kind of see the shift where you've got the Disney films that are based on a lot of fairy tales and folk tales, and then you start seeing them based on 
sort of now I don't want to use the word Lucy, but meteor uh, stories. So books. So you have things based on you know Shakespeare and um, a, a really thick, thick novel, and you know Hercules based on mythology, and which is certainly more convoluted than uh, many fairy tales. Say if we went back and had a new Disney film that was based just on a fairy tale, could it have the same kind of complexity and depth, or is it just going to be too limited by that source inspiration material? Well, I've got to give a shout out here, if I'm allowed to, for Ever After, which stars Drew Barrymore, among others. And that's a pretty much straight retelling of the Cinderella tale, but looking at it from a different point of view. And the one thing that I quite liked about that was Angelica Houston's character as the stepmother, where it looks at why she might have hated Cinderella so much. Um, I'm afraid I haven't seen the live action Cinderella from Disney to compare it with because we got partway through it, like 10 minutes in, and my daughter went, but the mother's just died and then we couldn't watch anymore because that Cinderella by Disney actually focuses on the mother being there and then suddenly she's not. And my daughter found that really, really upsetting. So we've never been able to get past that bit. But in the Ever After, um, you come in at the normal place where obviously the the step you have the, the bit at the beginning where somebody dies but you don't really see and then the stepmother comes in and you have this tiny little bit, bit at the beginning with the stepmother and the father and Cinderella and you see the dynamics and you can see how the stepmother feels pushed out and then it all kind of tumbles from there and there's huge hints and I mean huge kudos to Angelica Houston for bringing another phenomenal um, role to life but I think that could have been something that Disney would have looked at and should have looked at. And I, again, I'm sorry if they have done that in the live action when I haven't seen it. But they haven't. They haven't. But they also, nope. had, they also had a look at the prince and they had Leonardo da Vinci in it, which is a bit of a stretch. But they had him trying to better himself and they had the pe- his parents trying to make their son happy, but at the same time go, dude, you've got to get married and have a son because that's what we do. We're royalty. That is our main point. But also then kind of supporting him when he goes, I want to build a university and invite gypsies. And they're like, all right, fair enough. Okay. Now back to this thing about a son. Could we still, you know, and I I think Disney should have taken a leaf out of that book. And I think that would have been a, a really good way to reinterpret the the straightforward, very boring Cinderella myth. And I would just like to give a shout out here for the original Cinderella myth, which actually has an interesting twist at the beginning. And I can't remember which version it is. I'm very sorry, but I have read a version whereby Cinderella actually encourages the stepmother to um, marry her father. I think she might even end up poisoning someone, encouraging her stepmother either to poison her mother or her nurse or something to, to clear the way so that the stepmother can marry her father. And then the stepmother comes along and brings her stepchildren and goes, oh, by the way, you know, you got me here. Well, tough. I'm here now and you're back in the scullery and that's it. But I always thought that was a really interesting take because it had a very different beginning to the other Cinderella's that they have. Um, and if you examine how they came to have that dynamic, I think that can bring about a whole different story compared to just he died, she was nasty, Cinderella was beaten up, and that's it. That's very straightforward. But if you look at it properly and really think about it as a writer would, I think you can find a whole lot of stuff in there that you could do. And I'm sure it would be the same for everything else. So in Snow White, the original Snow White, the witch actually tempts her several times. Um, there's a, a great little section, I think it's by Marina Warner, sort of looking at the feminine articles that the witch tempts Snow White with and basically almost encourages her to become like the evil queen herself by just 
succumbing to vanity because she offers her a comb and a mirror and then ultimately it's poison apple that everybody remembers but cinderella's like uh, sorry snow white's like oh but these wonderful beautiful things that i want to become a beautiful woman and that was what was the downfall in the first place was the you know it was all fixating on beauty and i think there is a lot there in the original fairy tales and even if there isn't I think with modern day views, you can really pick them apart and examine it. And there is no reason for not doing a really good Cinderella or Snow White or something in our modern times. Well, there's a play by Timberlake Wurtenbaker um, called The Ash Girl, I believe, which is uh, obviously a Cind- um, Cinderella retelling. Uh, and uh, picking up on what you said about uh, Angelica Houston's character in Ever After, uh, the stepmother in that says, Well, I did, I only did what was done to me and I did the best with the resources I had available and my mum loves to quote this (laughs) she's like well the woman has a point you know like you really can you really only do have the resources that you have and I mean if you've come from a broken home or a difficult family I'm not excusing her behavior but I'm trying to say that there there are two or three sides to the story and that the, the stepmother should have maybe a kind of a greater we should we should have a greater understanding of her role in this but ever after is a great example of a using grounding a fairy tale in a historical period even if the historical period is a little bit nebulous uh, <coughs> like what do you say <laughs> leonardo da vinci chuck him into some french like kingdom <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, mixing all the time periods up. No, no, no. I think it, and I think it worked. I think it kind of grounded the fairy tale um, just a little bit more. And I, I don't, and I think maybe having uh, Da Vinci's kind of, or you know, the Da Vinci esque character in there um, allowed both the the, the prince and um, obviously our heroine to have it brought out a different side of their personalities rather than just following the quite standard disney version that we're all most familiar with i know this is a an episode on the men of disney but just perfectly related to what lucy was saying in the bit that her mother liked i absolutely have to recommend to everyone ever the book fierce fairy tales by nikita gill which is a selection of very short passages maybe two or three pages at most and it's quite a small book so the pages are very small And the perfect example here is looking at Cinderella and they not only examine the role of Cinderella, but also the stepmother. And like Lucy said, where she's come from and why she acts like this, but also the mother, the mother's message to Cinderella of how she should keep going. Um, They have something about Tinkerbell's anger management therapy and they had something about Little Red Riding Hood and how actually the wolf protects her and things like that. And it's that is a perfect example of how to take incredibly modern, complex issues and apply them to previous fairy tales and still make it sound realistic and to bring out the modern edge to stories that we know and love. And I think if someone can do it in a book, and well done, Nikita Gill, it is an amazing book. And I had to buy it the second I read it. Then I think Disney, with all of its resources and all of its animators and all of its story writers, should be able to come up with something similar. I mean, I think that's a great call to arms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come on, Disney, do some Nikita Gill. It would be very dark and disturbing, but it'd be awesome. Okay, moving on a little bit, uh, but I do want to touch on this because there seems to be a real division amongst the Disney films where you have human characters uh, compared to 
the anthropomorphized animals characters uh, representing these stories. So things like Dumbo and Bambi and Fox and the Hound and Lady and the Tramp and the Lion King. Do we see different representations of masculinity when it comes to animal representation instead? Do we feel like perhaps that's more freeing or is there no difference at all? The Timon and Pumbaa example from earlier is probably a fairly strong argument. Um, In the Disney canon, I've not seen a similar relationship done with human characters. I think there are probably fairly obvious reasons. Disney's never really been up there with representing a wide variety of people. And clearly they think that for some reason, if it's a warthog and a, a meerkat, that's fine. Uh, maybe they just wanted them to be friends. But like, that's the way it comes across. And I think it's great. Um, but it, it's definitely not something that I can easily pick um, a similar example. I mean, I know that they tried to, in the live action Beauty and the Beast, they tried to do something with Gaston and LeFou. But I hear from not watching it, I hear it was a bit of a cock up. It was more of a cop-out than a cock-up. It was just a kind of nod, poor nod. It was like an <laughs> aside. Yeah, and, and yeah. carry on. Well, having, I was, having said that, I watched it recently with my daughter and I had heard that it was a cop-out and it is to a certain extent, but to be fair to them, it raised the issues a lot more than any of the other films we sat and watched together. Um, so my daughter is one of these kids who won't sit and watch a film. She'll sit and ask you questions. Why are you doing that, mommy? Where's this? We're reading Harry Potter at the moment. She's like, oh, what does that mean? I'm like, well, you have to wait like another 10 pages or possibly to the end of the book for it to be revealed. So have some patience. But it was really interesting. She's like, why Why is LeFou saying that? And I was like, well, you know, he really likes Gaston and, and all this kind of, and, you know, talking all about it. And then at the end, I was like, when at the very end, they're all got that beautiful dance that they do. And LeFou suddenly goes into the arms of a man. And she was like, oh, I was like, oh, look, he got his happy ending with another man. And my daughter was like, wow, that's so cool. And that was it. There was none of this, but why are two men dancing together? It was like, no, no, that's fine. He got his happy ending and that's it. So for us as grown-ups, it's probably a bit too, you know, like, oh, God, that's, that's just pathetic. But for a small child who necessarily doesn't know people like that or doesn't necessarily think of it within a family or a romantic relationship, it's just the way people are. It's very interesting for her to say, oh, well, look, Belle got her prince and LeFou got his guy. So it does, it is better than nothing, but it's not great. I mean, my feeling about anthropomorphized characters is not necessarily that they deal with gender issues. I was thinking more that they deal with issues that would be upsetting in real life. So the main deaths I could think of were Bambi's mother and Simba's father, in The Lion King. And I don't necessarily think you could have death of real, well, I say real air quotes, of human characters within Disney movies. Or certainly you would have them very much off screen and later on. But if it's with animals, they seem to be a bit more acceptable. And so I tend to view the anthropomorphized characters as being something you could explore that with. Whereas not so much perhaps with with real life ones. Although I'm not quite sure where Robin Hood fits in that. I know they think he he is dead at one point, but then I also guess you've got Robin Hood is quite a brutal story, really, of oppression and things like that. And there's some very, very nasty characters in it, which you can turn to comedic value if they are 
animals. It's like, oh, a lion's, you know, a, co- a cowardly lion is something to laugh at because lions are normally so sort of fierce and, and the king of the jungle. And here you've got this weak one who sucks his thumb. That wouldn't necessarily work with a human character. It would evoke very different emotions and not necessarily funny ones. You'd have all sorts of different dynamics in that. Um, so that I think animals are usually for big, serious societal issues rather than perhaps for gender issues. No, I think that's very interesting. And I particularly think what you said about the lions, um, that would not have worked with any other animal. It was very cleverly chosen uh, that they picked a lion for King John with the whole kind of finger-sucking thing. I definitely think that with the anthropomorphized stories, you do see much darker content explored. So something like Dumbo, where you have that, I mean, the terrifying sequence but you would never, ever get that in one of their sort of human stories. No. Um, and it is interesting that they've allowed themselves that scope. And I think also, so, you know, I mentioned before that The Fox and the Hound, I still find to this day completely harrowing. And I don't think any of the the human animated stories have been anywhere near as emotionally sort of that gut punch thing that you get um, with something like The Fox and the Hound. And and I definitely think that they took more risks and certainly the ones where I remember more interesting friendship relationships, it was always with animals. And even like if you look at Little Mermaid, again, there's a really nice friendship between a male and a female in Little Mermaid, when you've got um, Flounder and Ariel, but they're, you know, they're, there's one mermaid and one fish. Um, and I think they were better at doing, at looking at friendships, just platonic friendships when it came to animals than when they had humans, because the humans, it was either, you know, like the, the kind of mentor figure or it was uh, a villain or a romantic figure. There, there weren't really many just friendships or at least um you know when i think of the the human ones and the friends you know you do think of gaston and lefou and but it wasn't a positive friendship um so certainly when it comes to looking at the the positive friendships that i've seen depicted in disney films um it, it's definitely in these the animal stories rather than the human ones i also think that kidnapping is a, a main source of av- animal um, areas, animal stories, um, or perhaps being removed from your safe environment. So you mentioned Dumbo there and the bit at the beginning where he gets taken away from his mother. And again, I took my daughter to the cinema to see it and that really distressed her to see it on the live action thing. And I was like, well, there's no way I'm letting you watch the cartoon because it's just heartbreaking. And, you know, the expressions on the elephant's face as it gets rocked in its mother's trunk. God, I cry and I cry. And I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want that on my daughter now. She's been floods of tears. Yeah, well, it says something about us, doesn't it, as a people, that we are more moved by watching animals in the same situations uh, than uh, than we are with our fellow humans, which is kind of sad. Well, I don't know that it is with Disney. I think that Disney just chooses to do the more serious stuff with animals. And if you think back to the the fairy tales, a lot of the fairy tales involve 
they do involve ordinary people, but ordinary people going on to do extraordinary things. And you could learn about fear and death through them whilst knowing at the same time that there was no way you were going on a quest to a magic mountain to find a dragon that breathed ice and did this, that and the other. And it is a way of exploring it. So in the old days, you had fairy tales with kings and princes and princesses and witches and trolls doing all sorts of stuff where you could examine your fears and your worries and learn how to cope with it. Nowadays, we have Disney movies, which started off with the fairy tales and have now moved on to you know more interesting ideas and, and original themes. So we've talked about Disney men from pretty much the, the early fairy tales all the way through up to modern day. Um, on my website, I do a Prince Year of the Prince question for 2019. And I've been asking various different people what they think they would like to see in princes today, uh, what their favourite sidekick would be, what three attitudes they think a prince should have, what their best outfit would be, that kind of thing. So obviously, we've come a long, long way. Do you think we're right there now with Disney princes? Do you think there is more that we would like to see? If you could have your perfect Disney prince on the screen, what do you think he would look like? What would he be like? Um, what would his animal sidekick be? What do you think? I feel like we need someone more like MacGyver. Can we have a Prince MacGyver? <laughs> you can have whatever Prince you want, hun. <laughs> I just, I like men who are, who have their kind of their own moral code, who know what they want and what they stand for, while also being really useful and clever and, and you know, can think around, problem solve. I like a problem solving man, but also with practical skills. So uh, in that respect, I think we haven't quite got there. I mean, now his, his name's going to go out of my head. Is it Hans? No, Hans is the bad one. The fr- in Frozen, Kristoff. Kristoff. <laughs> That's it, Christoph. Uh, you know, I mean, he's sort of handy. You know, he can ride a sled, can chop up ice because apparently that's a useful skill. But, you know, that's kind of on the way there. But I would like to see something just a little bit a little bit more. Um, and, and certainly that is is on the way to what I'm looking for. I can't argue with that. I mean, that was quite well... Um... You know, I, I think practical skills definitely go a long way. I might like to see a bit more geekiness, though. You know, um, someone who is uses his mind more than his muscles, like like a male bell would be would be quite hot. I think um, they definitely don't do enough reading, in my opinion. They need to have some more reading and maybe 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 inventing as well. So something. So yeah, they're good with their hands. I can't believe I just said that, but yeah that as well as that <laughs> but <laughs> that <laughs> yeah um yes yeah that is so crucial things i i think i would quite like to see more of i think if we were talking a, a a story that would have you know a significant romance i would actually quite like to see the romance of bell's parents because i feel like she Belle's mother must have been an incredible woman and to fall in love with that goofy little man who is just lovely. But I feel like there's a great story in that. I think one thing that's missing from princes and princesses in the modern Disney versions is that they're all about bettering themselves. They're very often not about bettering the people that they're ruling. And I think in modern society where you've got definitely more sort of a 
conglomerate kind of society where you're all looking out for each other, I think it would be very interesting to see princes and princesses who are fixated on trying to do the best for the people rather than trying to do the best for themselves and to find true love. Um, I think some more princes who are complementary to their princesses, like Flynn and Rapunzel, would be very welcome because at the moment they're kind of just in isolation. But I like a good a good duo, a good team. And you don't tend to get that. They tend to kind of be either trying to win each other over or trying to fight against the forces of evil. You don't necessarily get just, you know, some time with the two of them just to kind of fall in love and to see that they would make a good married couple. I think that's missing quite a lot. And that would be a very nice thing to see. It is important that we have just as many great male role models as female role models, especially in children's films. While more recent Disney films have given male characters more personality, they still have a fair way to go. Neither men nor women should be included in a story simply to further the other's narrative, nor be a kind of romantic prize. A simple gender swap of traditional roles isn't the answer. What we need is well-rounded, interesting roles for everyone. After all, there are always many sides to every story. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.